Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Circle Sanctuary Network Podcasts, brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, one of the oldest nature spirituality churches in the United States, connecting people of nature center paths around the world. Join us through the week for a variety of shows discussing various topics, celebrating the divine in all of its forms, through nature worship, rituals, education, and building bridges of community. Welcome to our show. My name is Deborah Rose, and I'm your host on Circle Talk. Circle Talk is one of the shows featured on CSNP, Circle Sanctuary Network podcast. CSNP has a lineup of rotating shows throughout each month. Mondays feature Lunatic Mondays with host Laura Gonzalez, and they alternate weeks in English and then in Spanish. It can't be Tuesday without Circle Talk, and I continue to be the host for this fun show on the first and third Tuesday of each month. Wednesdays Wednesdays features none other than Selena Fox with her show, Nature. Are you in the mood for some magic? Then you'll want to tune in on Thursday for Moon Magic with David and Jeanette Ewing. We have such a fun and informative lineup of shows, and we want you to try them all. Tonight, we're going to be talking with a favorite guest, author Oberon Zell. Oberon Zell is a renowned elder of the global magical community. In 1967, he was the first to claim the identity of pagan, incorporating the first pagan church of all worlds. Publishing Green Egg magazine since 1968, he was instrumental in the coalescence of the modern pagan movement, which has grown to now become one of the largest religions in America. In 1970, he published the earliest version of the Gaia Thesis. In the 80s, Oberon and his wife, Morning Glory, resurrected authentic living unicorns and led a diving expedition to New Guinea to document the reality of mermaids. Oberon creates beautiful altar figurines and jewelry and is the author of the Grimoire for the Apprentice Wizard and other books, founder and headmaster of the Gray School of Wizardry. He now lives in Redmond, Washington, and recently went to Starwood Festival in Ohio, which we're going to talk about uh, because it was not virtual, it was in person. As I said earlier, Oberon is the author of several books, and his new books are Song of Gaia and The Undiscovered Country, A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife. If you would like more information on the latest or the latest news on Gray School Wizardry, please go to www.greyschool.com, www.grayschool.com. To learn more about Oberon or to purchase books or art, please go to his website at oberonzell.com, and that's O-B-E-R-O-N-Z-E-L-L.com. Let's welcome Oberon to Circle Talk. Welcome, Oberon. Hi, Rick. Good to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. It's been, it's been a couple of years since I've talked with you, and you've been busy. Well, it, well, it has. We've been pretty busy over the last year or so, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. I know we talked a little bit before the show started about um, changes with COVID and the pandemic. What are some big changes that have went on um, for you um, since this pandemic started? Well, it's kind of strange. It sort of fit um, when I was um, uh, kind of wrapping up a two-year walkabout in which I was just traveled all over the Western Hemisphere. 
um, all by myself, pretty much. Well, not not always. Sometimes I had part companions, but mostly that was it. Walkabout, which was fascinating, and I ended up um, <clears throat> kind of concluding that the place I should settle was in the Nashville area. So I got there just exactly at the beginning of March when the whole pandemic erupted, and oh, wow. there I was stuck there. Um, and I was looking forward to connecting with the local pagan community, a bunch of good folks. We never could do that, of course. We were, Everybody was just locked in their house. And I was all by myself there for quite a long time. But in that process, um, and, and before that, and shortly afterwards, I got an offer to move out here to Washington to uh, join the Venusian Church's wonderful retreat facility, uh, 87 acres of uh, gorgeous property that they they just celebrated yesterday, no, no, two days ago, the 40th anniversary of the acquisition of this property. So a lot has gone into it. It's really quite beautiful. So this is where I ended up. And that involved having to make a move across the country with a big, um, big truck and trailer towing my car from Nashville to Seattle area. And uh, that was quite something in the middle of June. Well, the beginning of June, of course, with, you know, and then there was a matter of restaurants and motels and gas stations, everybody in lockdown, everybody fearful, everybody masking. It was really weird. And then, of course, we got into a weird thing, and it's been that way up until just this past March after a year of that when everybody here was finally able to get vaccinated and breathing great sighs of relief. And now, after we thought that was all cool, now we're looking at this new Delta variant and and going back into masking. So it's been a crazy, crazy while. Um, it is for everybody, the whole world. Here we are. It, 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 it really, it, it really um, has been. And, and um, one of the things that I know is in fact myself, because I teach public classes, um, that we went virtual and I wasn't really used to Zoom and, and teaching classes and ritual Virtual is a whole new experience, um, so a lot of people went that way. But you actually got to go to a festival in person, which I haven't done for two years. <laughs> well, only uh, that was the first one, and it was really exciting. But there is something uh, to be said about what we learned during this time—the whole um, ability to go virtual. We we kind of got turned on to Zoom right about as a result of actually the World Parliament of Religions, which was um, right after Samhain of 2019. And a right. bunch of us went there and, and there were folks really promoting the whole brand new Zoom thing. So we picked up on it and it spread quickly. And the first group to take advantage of that was the ATC, Aquarian Tabernacle Church. You know, we'd all been hanging out together at the Parliament. So that was kind of neat. And they did their spring mysteries on Zoom, and that was the beginning of it all. And since then, it's been interviews and festivals and gatherings and workshops all being done with Zoom. And we've carried on. We have somehow managed to carry on and develop a whole new way of communicating. So I I feel that when we are able to get back to more uh, in-person life things, we're still going to keep doing the Zoom stuff because it's very useful. And, and I can see where uh, yeah. this can go in the future as we get better at our virtual communications, as our virtual reality systems get better, creating avatars and second life things and eventually holographic projections. This is just the beginning of a whole new way of being able to 
uh, be in each other's presence without having to leave our, the comfort of our comfy chairs. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. I, even myself, I had to relearn to do things. Things that work in person don't necessarily work in Zoom. And early on, two years ago, the first ritual that I attended by at a festival with someone else, they basically tried to do a ritual just like in person, but they had they were filming it on an iPhone. <laughs> they called quarters. They kept walking. We couldn't see. <laughs> and so I think we, myself included, the first time I tried to do it, I was nervous. I knocked over a candle. So I think we've learned. Do you know what I mean? It's a different platform. But oh, it is. I know, it is. Yep. I know myself. Um, one of the good things is, you know, because of finances and taking off of work to travel, I'm limited what festivals I can go to. And if the festival is virtual, I've been able to things in California that I wouldn't have been able to go to normally. So I don't know. What do you think? I think even when we open up and we all have in-person festivals, I think a lot of people are still going to have a virtual part of it because I think people are going to want that. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that that was what happened at Starwood. While a lot we were in person and doing person, in-person stuff, there were also big screens set up at various places, uh, and we were able to bring in uh, other speakers on Zoom to an, a live audience, and they went the other way too. Some of the workshops and presentations that we were doing there were also being sent out on Zoom to the Zoom audience. And I think we're going to be marrying these platforms it's going to be a whole new thing, a whole new world. And I think that we're doing amazingly well adapting as we are. And certainly there's amusing episodes that happen like what you described there as we get used to this because it's a whole new learning curve. But it's exciting really because it's taking us into a new dimension of, of um, communication. But the advantage, as you say, of not having to travel, that's worked out well because festivals have not had to worry about the budget of flying in right. speakers like myself. Right. And, um, and, and all of the complications of bringing in people physically to a place and have putting them up and, and the camping and the rental of the facilities and all that stuff is all, that all went away for a time. But of course, it's still not the same. Normally I would be going somewhere for a weekend event and I would, you know, I would leave on Thursday, fly out, right. you know, and then have Friday, Saturday and Sunday and then fly back. And then. so it would be, you know, that many days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday would be five days. I'd be gone. Well, now by doing a couple of workshops, I've got like a couple of hours that are taken out of my time, right. and that's a whole different thing. But the but Starwood this year was live for the first time in that time. It's our 30th anniversary, and I have been to uh, – pardon? Was it fun? It was wonderful. It was a – Oh, it was a blast. People were just so happy to see each other. People were just beaming and – laughing and hugging and jumping and for joy. It was really just, it was a wonderful spirit. The attendance numbers were, of course, a lot lower than previous times. We had about, um, I think, about 400 paid attendees and another 100 staff and all. But um, it was it was tight, but it was nice. It was it had an intimacy to it. You know, usually there's at least twice that many people, but it's all good here. And for me personally, of course, I have enjoyed having a writer's retreat, but I've not had to spend a lot of time traveling on the road. I've been able to stay here and work on books. 
and gotten several books out over this time, and I like that a lot because that's hard to do when you're traveling. Well, you know what? I have to give you kudos. You're one of the few um, um, artists and authors who said that. Everyone else I've talked to said that they had all these plans to do during quarantine, and they, they don't know what they did, but the year went by, and they didn't do what they wanted to do. So kudos to you for knuckling down and writing books. <laughs> Well, that's what I that's what I like to do. That's my creative output, you know, as uh, books and art. And that's, you know, some people when they do when they have time off and they don't have anything else going on, they want to play video games or, or solitaire or whatever they want to do. You know, what I like to do is is work on creative output because I got all kinds of stuff in my head that is just fighting to get out. So I just have to sit down in front of a keyboard, and out it pours. Well, my partner and I are big fans, and, and I, I believe I have most of all your books. Huh. Your new one, tell me about, um, and I'm so interested in this, uh, and I'll tell you in a second why. Tell me about The Undiscovered Country, A Traveler's Guide right. to the End of Well, this is interesting. This, uh, this project started actually quite a few years ago, shortly after Morning Glory's death, which was now seven years ago. Um, one of the uh, people who is very much a part of, of the process of, of her completing her journey was um, Judith Fenley, who is a, a death doula that we knew. And um, she was just totally right there, and she just helped us with all the little things in the way, including making the arrangements for us to have a morning glory planted in a green burial for full-body uh-huh. Burial up on our on our land, which was wonderful, and with an apple tree planted on her grave, and the whole bit, classic and beautiful and very meaningful. And now, our property, uh, the Church of All Worlds Land of Oliven in California, is now officially designated as a cemetery for green burials. And we've had several more since then, so now it's becoming quite a little cemetery place up there, which is really wonderful well, and with the intention. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's why Gudin called it Onovan, the land of the dead, you know, in Welsh. And we always had that in mind, but we never could get through the process of the paperwork. And now that has been completed. So that's good. So so the conversation then arose that with all the stuff that uh, Judith was putting together and all of the the research and interest I have in, in you know, the all afterlives because of the mysteries and such, it seemed like a good idea to write a book. So we made a proposal to Llewellyn uh, on my name and picked it up. And so both of us went together working on a book of which the first half would be the process of dealing with the dying. Uh, and it would include the background of the um, whole funeral industry and the way that people have been disposing of the dead for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, really. And all of that, and that would be the part she would be dealing with, and then I would pick it up. From, from there, the journey of the dead, the dying person, their journey, and where that might go. Well, by the time we got all this stuff together, it really became obvious that we had written two separate books. And after long conversations, uh, Llewellyn decided to go on ahead and publish uh, her book initially, which is called Death, Rights, and Rights. And we went mm-hmm. back and forth on which of those would precede the rights, R-I-T-E-S, or the R-I-G-H-T-S. And that came out really nicely, and that left the whole all of my material that uh, did not go into that, all about the afterlife and stuff, uh, ready for another book. But I, rather than go with Llewellyn, I had made some really good contacts with folks at Black Moon Publishing, 
and I thought I would diversify a little bit because they do they're they're interested in a lot of books dealing with the dark side stuff um they they primarily got started with voodoo type materials mm-hmm. but they're all so they they just begged me to say, well, you know, have me do it with them. They wanted me to do that. So that's what I did. So the first book is out by Lou Ellen, Death Rights and Rights. And the second book, That Undiscovered Country, came out um, <clears throat> by Black Moon. And I'm really very pleased because it explores the afterlife as a concept and as mythology and as geography uh, throughout all of history. And I've traveled to many places around the world. Uh, and check out, you know, tombs and excavations and archaeological uh-huh. stuff. And I've been into many of these sites. So I wrote about that, and I also did lots of illustrations for it, lots of maps of, of the afterlife and, as seen in different cultures. And so I'm, I'm rather pleased. They make a nice set. And uh, people are really uh, appreciating both of them, and I think we did a good job. Um, I think, or at least my own personal experience, is that I was, um, I've led funerals, I'm very comfortable with concepts of death, Um, I'm a nurse, and so I've experienced death, and so, but I realized that I think it was death of other people. I don't know how much I really Mm. thought about my death (laughs) until, uh, this is probably 15, 20 years ago, Um, I had an accident. Um, luckily I was okay. Mm. It was snow. My car spun around, but I went head on into, um, a concrete wall. So oh my goodness. I physically wasn't really hurt, but I remember that sound of the wall and it, and I remember the police, everybody kept saying, you are so lucky. We can't believe you're not dead. And, and it's funny, mm. O'Brien, it hit me. Oh my gosh. What is it going to, it yeah. hit me. I'm going to die. What's that going to be like? And I and my family laughed for like, it's probably PSC. For six months, I read books on reincarnation. I talked to people. It was just really interesting how it went from a concept to me. So that's why I will definitely get your book, and I find it interesting. And, yeah, it took me a while to, you know, really understand what I really did believe. Like, I personally Mm. think we, I believe in reincarnation. I think we will see people we love. And it was just really interesting. Well, I think that you will find this an interesting book because it encompasses all of that. There's even an enormous glossary, a major part of the book, of the um, of the other worlds, uh, the, the characters and geography and mythology and many, many different cultures is included. The thing I found interesting, well, I always have, this is why I don't really have any fear of death per se, that every culture throughout the world, no matter how isolated they've been, all have a concept of the continuity of of the uh, of the essence of the soul, the spirit, the being, you know, past the transition point of death. Everyone, every culture has always seen death as simply a transition, passing through a doorway, you know, that gets shut behind you maybe, but, you know, who knows what's on the other side, but definitely there is an other side, and that's the important thing. And I also bring in some of the more recent uh, uh, conversations going on in the esoteric areas of quantum physics about this stuff, because that's also being very supportive of that. The more we're understanding about the quantum universe, the more uh, we cannot separate consciousness from cosmos. I mean, you know, and so consciousness is a 
as much a part of the of the universe, maybe even the foundation of the universe, maybe even more real than all the stuff we think of as matter, because you know matter, energy, electrons, and protons, all down to the bottom level, there's really nothing actually there. There are no physical objects in what we call the physical world. There's just mm-hmm. fields and vortices and spin and things like that. You know, so you get all the way down to it at the very bottom of it all, you don't find anything solid. What you find is Consciousness, just pure consciousness. Yeah. That's it. Well, and so we're all a part of that. We're, we're we are. Um, so there's a great saying about that. We are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a physical experience. So Absolutely. the leading thesis is now calls this a um, the simulation hypothesis that we are living in a virtual world, a very sophisticated one. It's probably been in effect for a very long time, but nonetheless, it's um, it's just as much of a simulated world as second life, and that also implies that the dreaming and the um, afterlives of various cultures are comparable, also simulated worlds that we can take avatars and enter into them and participate, but we ourselves are beyond all that. We are part of a universal cosmic consciousness that just, you know, extends little fingertips into all these different worlds. So anyway, that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, I, I, I do. I, again, that started me on my journey, and I, so I find it fascinating. I know a lot of our um, listeners did too. What, what – I'm just always fascinated by um, um, the Alwyn and the inspiration behind things. What um, what was your inspiration? What made you think about writing a book like this? Well, dealing with it, dealing with dying. I mean, having my yeah. beloved life mate dying slowly over a period of years. I mean, she said when she first got the the announcement from the doctor that she had terminal cancer, she said, well, at least now I know the face of death that will be coming for me. And it wasn't going to be a surprise. It wasn't going to be like some mysterious unknown thing that was going to happen. It was right there. And so she had to deal with it. She wrote a fabulous song called The Cancer Train that turned out to be the only song of the many that she wrote that actually got recorded. And it was recorded when she sang it on the radio in a a tribute show for Isaac Bonowitz. And she sang this song. And it's a wonderful song, especially since so many of our people do seem to be dying of cancer. That's the main thing. But um, the, that was certainly the inspiration because I really hadn't hadn't thought about this kind of stuff. You know, it's especially on a personal level, I guess. You know, we, right. we deal with it. Well, we know there's the cycle of life and all that thing, and we celebrate the right. end of the year and the season of death and be Samhain and the Dumb Supper and all the rest of it, and the mysteries, of course. But you don't really take it quite that personal until it actually comes and stands before you, you know. Absolutely. Again, so, I had that. <laughs> I had that same experience, and so, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Um, well, I look forward to. Um, I look forward to uh, reading that. So, do you have any books? Are you working? What are you working on next? Well, the 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 book that came out immediately after that was a long-awaited children's book that was actually written ten years ago, but it took a long time to get all the art for it because it's all pages and pages of gorgeous full-color art. And it's a children's book called The Song of Gaia, and it is a creation myth. It is the whole, you know, geared for children, but the 
but the images and the mythology and the science in it are totally authentic all the way up. And in the back section is a fairly extensive, um, uh, well, how would you have it described? Basically just additional material on the mythology and the science for parents and teachers who might want to go further into what's all behind. So mm-hmm. you've got the verses and the artwork, which is totally, you know, good from the littlest kids up to, well, much older, actually. I, I still find right. it beautiful to read. And then you've got all this inf- explanatory information in the back of it. And I think it's quite a package. Everybody I've shown it to has snapped it up. I, I keep ordering batches of them and taking them to festivals. And as soon as people can get a look at it, they go, I have to have this for my kids or my grandchildren. You've got a grandchild. She's going to love it. You know? Oh, absolutely. And I will direct people to your website because if they go to your site, OberonZell.com, they're able to purchase your book, correct? That's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. All of my stuff are, is there. Are, are they also so on what Amazon I'm working or other places? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my stuff. You just you can just type my name into Amazon, Oberon Zell, into Amazon Books, and all my books will come up. They're all there. Okay. So you can do it that way. That's actually probably the easiest way. But, of course, I get a little bit more of the action if it's, if you get it from me directly. But not enough to make a difference. Besides, I really like people to post reviews on Amazon. So, yeah, that's good. All right. Um, can you still get some of your statues and art online? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, particularly the Gaia statue, which is now available in four sizes and several different styles, which is really, really neat. I waited for over 20 years for the technology to catch up with my vision. So right. we have now... From the original 8-inch Gaia figure, we now have a little mini size that's 4 inches that is just absolutely cute as all get out, perfect for your small altar or your dashboard or your car. Mm-hmm. And then there's a 14-inch size, which is a real nice, comfortable size for a large altar. And then there's a 24-inch mm-hmm. size, which is quite oh, wow. spectacular. And we're working on uh, the next size will be life-size. So that's that's next in line. Oh, wow. Take a while to do but I had to wait until the technology for scanning and 3D printing was able to catch up with what I had in mind. So it is now, and they're beautiful. And a number of my other pieces are also still available, but we haven't uh, reissued or reproduced um, a number of pieces that have gone out of stock yet. I'm looking forward to doing that. I did about 50 pieces between um, statues and plaques over uh, about a 20-year period. Oh, wow. And when I had a studio. And I haven't had a studio in over 20 years, so I haven't done anything new in that regard. But there's a lot. And um, those that are still available can be gotten from the same website that handles my Gaia, which is millennialgaia.com. And, again, if you just uh, go from my uh, you know, personal site, all that stuff is on there. People can find it all. Yes. But yeah, I this, also uh, I, yep. You've designed jewelry because I have uh... – uh, my partner's gotten me several pieces of your jury. I had the star. Oh yes, and you have you have like ah. yes, you have your jury's wonderful. So, well, thank you. Yeah, I I did a lot of jewelry pieces. I guess I've been fairly prolific when I look on how much <laughs> stuff I've had turned out. Wow, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, but you know the beautiful thing is it's stuff that people um, display, and so when I visit people, when I travel around, you know. I'll visit people, and their altar will be one of my statues, or they're wearing 
my jewelry or T-shirts or my posters or something will be up on the wall. I mean, to have, I feel like I am part of the whole community in an amazing way. You know, people talk Absolutely. to me about articles they read in Green Egg or books. My, my books will be on their bookshelves, you know, and, and it's, um, it's just a wonderful thing to be dispersed as I am throughout this entire community that I just love so much. It's just my, my people and my home and everything so precious to me, and I'm Absolutely. so glad to be a part of it. And weren't you, if I remember correctly, it's been several years ago, I think the last time we had you on, you talked about it. Weren't you in a documentary? Oh, I've been in a number of documentaries, but you're probably talking about the, the 27, 28-minute film documentary called The Wizard Oz, which has yeah, won a bunch yeah. of awards at various film festivals. And that was quite a project, really, quite a project. I mean, they managed to get some of the childhood footage that my parents had shot when we were kids. And in news items from media stuff and all kinds of it's quite a quite a powerful piece. I'm very impressed. Oh yeah, did a good well, job. Uh, can you still can you still see it anywhere? Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's on Vimeo, uh, and it's kind of hard to get it because when you type Wizard Oz, it keeps wanting to give you the Wizard of Oz movie. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> uh, but but it's there. You you can find it again. The link to it is on my personal website. So if you just go to oberonzel oh. dot com, there's a link to the video right there. Oh, all right. To the document. Well, great. Yeah. Well, tell our listeners about Gray School and give us the latest news. Well, I will be delighted to do that because just a couple of days ago, on the first of this month at Lunasad, we celebrated our 17th anniversary of the wow. uh, founding of the school. Well, that's when we first opened our virtual doors to new students. The school was actually founded officially on incorporated on Pi Day on, on March 14th of 2004. But now it's been 17 years since we opened up to our initial students and we were kind of that was amusing because at the time we thought we would be getting about all teenagers is what we were gearing for we were rather surprised that three quarters of the students who signed up were adults so we had to quickly readjust our our, our whole uh way we were put together to, to provide for an adult audience and today the vast majority of our students are adults but we do have youth students if you know, for those who wish to be a part of it. And we do have a number of families that are using our uh, our homeschooling program, basically, for their kids as well as getting the stuff themselves. So it's something for the whole family, not just for adults and not just for kids. It's for everybody. So that we now have over 500 classes and 16 departments. Oh. and. Wow. And the school, the school is largely run by a fabulous administrative team, of whom the provost um, is uh, my personal apprentice, uh, Nicholas Kingsley, and he's just done an awesome job with it. We, we just had um, our, our first conclave in several years. We hadn't had a physical place to have one for a while at um, the new headquarters, which is a, uh, a mansion, a colonial-era mansion, well, I don't know, you mentioned exactly Manor House, I guess is a better word, in Whitehall, New York, which is upstate New York oh, near wow. the Vermont border. And that's wonderful. Big, old, wizardy looking house with ancient paintings and furniture and peeling wallpaper. It's, it's totally magical. 
But what's really interesting is right down the street from it is an actual castle, and it's available at a price that is well within reasonable affordableness. And we are putting together a fundraising program and, and, and trying to get some support for acquiring a real genuine castle for the school. So oh, that's that our big be- exciting news there. So is that or do you have that? I mean, do you have that information now, or it's in the? Oh, well, there's a basic uh, promotional package that's available. If anybody is interested in following up on it, we'll. I don't think it's presently put up uh, yet because we're still fine tuning it. But the basic package is there, and uh, the, and there's lots of pictures inside and outside of the of the facility and full descriptions and details. It's really quite quite awesome. Really, it's 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 a castle, you know. In Whitehall, New York, of all places. So oh, we're really wanting really... to go for that. And there's a train. There's a train, a passenger train that you can get with fancy old coaches, just like in the Hogwarts Express, you know, to can take you from New York or Boston all the way up to uh, up, up to Whitehall. So that's kind of neat, too. That is very neat. So... Tell us if somebody is interested. What? Well, let me start in the beginning. What? What was your inspiration besides creating the school, the Great School of Wizardry? Well, the initial inspiration came a very long time ago. That would be clear back when I was in college. Uh, well, after shortly after that, actually, well, actually, even then, when I was in college, I was interested in. Uh, radical experimental forms of education, the Montessori, Waldorf, uh, Summerhill. I studied all those. In fact, my my son uh, was went to Montessori school, was one of the first kids, and my, my first wife, his mother, was one of the first uh, Montessori teachers to be trained in this country. And she oh, wow. went to the first school. So we have been in on that from the very beginning. And I was working with Human Development Corporation, and we were doing a lot of work with integrating the Montessori program into the Head Start program. And I was involved in that. So I was very intrigued by the idea of experimental education because I, I loved school growing up, but there were lots of inadequacies, like like we had to put up with a lot of idiots, you know, which was not fun, mm-hmm. stupid teachers and obnoxious kids and stuff. But the idea of a of a school where people are not compelled to go because they have to, which is what public education is, but rather one that is by choice, that is such a cool place that people want to go. Well, that really took off uh, in 1972, and Marvel Comics came up with the X-Men and, the, and Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. And my mm-hmm. attitude was, I want to do that. I really want a school like that. I, I know I got teacher's education. I, was, I served as a teacher, actually. I worked as a grade school teacher, got a teacher certificate. You know, I did preschool work, did high school work, college teaching. I've, I've taught at all levels, really, as well as being a counselor and in some administration. So I really had all the qualities. But during all that period of time, all those decades, my primary mission was was the religious mission. I felt that the need for a new religion and a new um, way of approaching that whole thing was much more urgent. So the Church mm-hmm. of All Worlds and the and the entire pagan community, as it emerged, was really my primary focus for most of my life. And it wasn't up until I finally got convinced that I should start writing books, <laughs> which was in 2002. My goodness, I was, uh-huh. 
It was, took a long time. I've been publishing a magazine, you know, writing articles and editorials, but I've never done a book. So I got I got persuaded to write a book, and so the one I wrote was the grimoire for the Apprentice Wizard, which is sort of a basic, you know, introduction to everything you want to know about wizardry when you're just studying on the path. That was the idea. And then it re- I realized that well, I've got now I've written a textbook, but I have to have a school. And right about that time, the Harry Potter stuff was coming out, and I said, you know, maybe the world is really ready for this. You know, it mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have been if, if I'd tried to do this five or ten years earlier, it might have fallen completely flat because people just didn't have a place in their mind for wizardry or school of wizards. But with Harry Potter, thank you, J.K. Rowling, they, they became a place in the public consciousness, which we were totally prepared to fill because I've been preparing for this all my life. So we mm-hmm. opened it up, and it's been phenomenal. It's a great school. People are just totally loving it. I'm very pleased and proud what um so you do not have to be any certain like you don't have to be Wiccan or Gardnerian or or Dianic or you don't have to be any certain path to attend. And no, that's one of the beautiful things about wizardry. Unlike witchcraft, wizardry is not a religion. Wizards are not um, a religious functionary. They're not. They might be, but that's not the job. It's being. It's like being. Being a wizard is like being a professor, you know, or, or a teacher or a counselor or a guide. Lots of things that one might be, but none of them define a religious role. So the Gray School is also unique among all the schools teaching magical subjects that we are not associated with any church or religion. And we've had students, have students from a wide variety of religions, not just pagan. We've had Sufi and Muslim and Jewish and Hindu oh, wow. and Buddhist students as well. And a Christian, they're all welcome. Everybody's welcome. And and all of these different things have their mystical traditions. I mean, there's traditions of mystical Christianity and Kabbalism and Judaism and all kinds of stuff. So people drawn to those approaches, to mystical and magical, well, we have it here. And there's no there's no disqualification for, well, really anything. If people want to come, you know, we're... That's great. We welcome them, and we will teach you what you want to know about a lot of stuff. So do you just take classes um, based on the subject you're interested in? Is there a curriculum? Like do you, are you, do you go to certain levels or different grades? How does it work? Well, there are 16 departments, all color-coded for different specialties of magic. Um, and that's that's quite a lot. But some of the colors, for example, the, the colors are, are traditional, but there's a lot of them. Uh-huh. People, they're way beyond the black and white kind of stuff. For example, um, herbalism or wart cunning, as we call it, is green, obviously. Healing is blue. Alchemy is red. Beast mastery is brown. Uh, cosmology is violet. Um, uh, you know, it goes on like that. There's uh, ceremonial magic is white. Dark arts is black. There's There's colors for all of these. And we have them. And um, in each department, well, throughout the whole school, there's seven basic levels of apprenticeship. These would be the equivalent to years, but it's a kind of go as you, at your own pace. So you sign up for time. You know, your, your, your uh, tuition is based on months or years. And however much work you want to do in that time is up to you. So we've had a few students that have whipped through the whole program through all seven levels in just a couple wow. of years and graduated. 
and they get and when you graduate you get a journeyman certificate because we follow the old guild system that was the foundation of schools which goes from apprentice to journeyman to master and then well ultimately to adept if you get that far but the first level which traditionally in in the traditional guild system you would begin to be qualified for about the age of 11 which is the uh-huh. equivalent to where we get our uh, junior high to high school period of time. And it was generally a seven-year program of apprenticeship, which you would then complete by the time you're 18 ordinarily. And that's the foundation of our entire Western educational system goes on to that. So we have that, and we have a classical education uh, program that, that d- differentiates the broader categories of subject matter. And um, it's it's really quite complex, although I don't think that students encounter that complexity, but the structure that we've got behind the scenes, uh, it's like, you know, when you see a swan swing gracefully across the water, but you look underneath and those little feet are just going like crazy. So uh-huh. that's the part that people don't see. But it's, um, yeah, uh, there, when you first sign up, you're encouraged to take a look at the different areas. It's the first initial class you have to take is called Colors of Magic, and I teach mm-hmm. that one. And you, you look at all the different um, departments that there are and, and get some sense of what they encompass and, and which ones interest you the most and that stuff. In your second level, um, you, you should be expected to decide on a major, and you can pick any of those. But we can have multiple majors, and we've had rainbow majors. It's not like when you're there for seven levels you get kicked out you complete the seven right. levels but if you don't do your final uh you know your, your final paper um you can just keep on taking more classes indefinitely and stay in there or you can complete your thing and you can get your journeyman certificate and then you can continue on for higher levels in journeyman level studies and um we also have a program for magisters and that's people who come to the school and they've already had a lot of background they really are practitioners and and major mm-hmm. people, well, they don't necessarily want to come in as apprentices and go all the way from kindergarten on up. So we have a, a magister program. You can just take anything you want at any level. You pay a little extra for that, and you don't get the uh, certificate at the end of a seven-year program because you're not in that program. But you can switch mm-hmm. over if you decide you want to. So mm-hmm. we've really made it very user-friendly to accommodate whatever it is the needs of our people. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like college. I mean, it's really exciting. So, um, it is. a magical it is. college. So, it sounds really cool. Yep, a, co- a college of magical knowledge is one of the things that we've, we've talked about. But it is interesting because it does have a foundation that's, that's at a much lower level of education than college. There is that basic um, apprenticeship program which underlies it. Yeah. But I, it's, I, I think it's wonderful. I expect the Gray School will be around for a long time and, and many new innovations. We have a whole campus in Second Life, a virtual campus, which is really fun, and it keeps getting better as the technology gets better, and a lot of people enjoy yeah. that, you know, all the stuff that's there. Just wander around and take classes. There's classrooms and there's you know, a pub, and there's all kinds of stuff that people oh, can do fun. interacting with Second Life. That's really fun. And you've had no problems getting students, and you said it's been a very robust attendance? Yes, yes. Our, our current 
Our current numbers uh, have been just about 300 for the past year or so. Wow. We had been higher than that, and uh, and then, uh, you know, it varies at various times of what's going on. I think the whole COVID thing has made it difficult for people because there's a lot of people don't have any money, you know. It's not right. that this they is an expensive program, but, right? But people have to prioritize what they feel is they can spend money on right now. Uh, luxuries, maybe not. Well, that is very, very exciting. It, it's funny. Um, my partner, who I don't, I don't remember. I, I must not have um, been pagan, and I don't remember the green egg, and that that was not a thing. But um, he's mm-hmm. also in his sixties, and he remembers. And he said, I mean, that was back in the day. And he gives. There wasn't that many books. There was no internet. And if you weren't in an area that there was a group that literally was your only knowledge and information. And he talks about, you know, people would write letters and yeah, I mean, it was just funny. Um, the, um, you know, I mean, it's so exciting you did that and how um, impactful that that was on so many people back then. Well, I think what made Green Egg different perhaps and unusual is that um, other groups that were putting out their little publications or newsletters were just really talking about their particular group, which is fair enough, you know. But we weren't uh, just, I mean, certainly there was Church of All World stuff, but it was really a small part of it. What we were really trying to build up was the entire global pagan community, not just the Church of All Worlds. And, and Green Egg became the one uh, place that everybody went to. Every it was the one thing everybody read because there was no internet, there was no Facebook, there was nothing like that. That's exactly now, what he says. exactly. But now, of course, um, I mean, Green Egg still continues in publication, and it's and, and and you know the latest issue was number one hundred and seventy-six, which is an astonishing record over all these years. And it's, but it's online now. It's electronic. So it's not like you walk into a bookstore and you see it on the bookshelf there. You know, that was a whole different world. And so not everybody is getting it anymore because we've now got like 4 million of us in, in the United yeah. States, according to the statistics. And not, obviously, we don't have 4 million people reading Green Egg, which is too bad. Because when everybody was reading it, everybody was in communication with each other. But it was a much smaller yeah. community. So people would write in letters, and we'd publish them. You know, we had a good third of the magazine was the letters section. It was dynamic. People would write in about all kinds of stuff and get in arguments. It was really cool. We actually resolved. You had to get the the next issue to find out what the answer was. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It kept you going. It was like a serial. Well, that, but today now there is no single place. Now there's a million websites and a million Facebook pages and a million messenger things, and nobody can put out any message that everybody else will see. No dialogue or discussion can include everybody or even a large number of people because you don't even know what's going on. It could be right there, but you won't see it. You know, there's no place you can go and see, oh, here's the latest issue of such and such magazine or a new book. None of that. I mean, even buying books without going to a bookstore, you have to be searching for them. You don't have to know what you're looking for. And then you can go to Amazon. You can title it. But it's not like walking into a store and saying, oh, wow, that cover really caught my attention and pick it up and kind of flip through it. Oh, I like this. You know, we don't have that anymore. And that's, you know, it's a totally different experience of shopping for 
uh, not only material things, but ideas and concepts and religion and theology. You just don't yeah, have a way misses, to do it. Anymore. Again, he's old school. He misses, you know, there used to be, you know, things weren't online. There was no Internet. And so there was a few bookstores, and you would go there, and then you can meet other people to talk to. And uh, right. it was uh, it, how you built a community. Yep. And many of them would have uh, classes. You know, uh, my first introduction to the craft really came from, you know, the first uh, metaphysical witchy store that appeared in St. Louis. And, and the person who was doing it, Deborah, had put a sign up on the bulletin board saying she was offering classes. So we signed up. Oh, boy. And that was it. You know, I mean, this is still going on places, but um, they're not the same kind of a community center it used to be. Now, beautiful stores, of course. Good Lord. And now the metaphysical stores that I visited in doing book signings for and stuff are huge enterprises, like going into you know, a major department store, not just a little funky hole-in-the-wall place with candles and herbs, you know. But um, it just isn't the same. It just seems very, you know, I don't know, shopping mall, commercial almost. You know, you don't have that intimacy yeah. in the community. But on the other hand, um, something that I do find exciting, I, and again, it felt like, and, and I may be wrong, this is just my opinion, that back in the day, your spirituality or what group you, like, labeled or belonged to was based geographically. Do you know what I mean? Like, if all the people oh, yes. around me were X, I kind of was X, too. And now with the Internet, I mean, again, <laughs> I can read blogs from people who are in Australia who have a totally different right. view of things. And I do find that very interesting. Well, right. Well, for example, we have our, um, every fortnight, every two weeks, we have a International Church of All Worlds uh, Claw Nest meeting, and, and it's on Zoom, and people who are part of CAW all around the world join in, you know. And we've got a bunch of folks in Australia, we're very big there, and, and um, Thailand, and, and all over the United States, oh. and various other obscure places. And it's really neat to have that, to have that kind of community. But again, it's um, not quite the same as being there in person. So we've, you know, you see, you still need that. You still need to have your little coven or your uh, nest where you actually meet in person with some people, which is, it's wonderful. We get to keep it all. There's nothing we have to give up, really, um, except perhaps the idea of having one place that everybody goes to so you can post something there and everybody will see it. We don't have that anymore. Yeah, I, I do think that is, for me, that was one of the gifts of, and I've been going to festivals for about probably 20 years. Um, but, again, when I went, I got to see people of different faiths, of uh, different spiritualities, mm -hmm. who all considered themselves pagan, and it was very eye-opening to me. I mean, I had never oh, really heard oh, yeah. of Norse, and I had really – heard of different things huh. and so yeah it was i do think that is the gift that um one of the things that festivals does that if you go to a good one it will um you know you'll be able to um experiment and learn things that you probably wouldn't have the you know available as you do oh, just on your own absolutely I've, I've kind of mapped out the history of the whole pagan movement by decades you know like the 60s was the founding of groups well, the 50s was witchcraft, you know, basically getting that going. You know, Gardner and, and the, you know, uh, British traditional BCW mm -hmm. folks and all that, um, they got that launched. And then in the 60s, 
it was paganism, and all the new pagan groups came out there, Church of All Worlds and the Church of Eternal mm-hmm. Source and Feriferia and, and the Druids. I mean, you had all these different folks that were not witches, uh, but, but wanting to revive pagan stuff, mostly ethnic traditions, Egyptian and Greek and Norse and Celtic and so on like that, and, and some that were totally uh, outside of that realm into a whole different dimension like the Church of All Worlds. But um, that, uh, that decade, then, then it was followed by publications. In the 70s, what was going on was publications. So everybody was putting out newsletters and magazines and, and getting in touch with each other, but still not meeting in person. But at least we were talking across a wider range through all these. And then in the 80s, the festival movement took off, and people started actually you know, going to festivals and meeting in person and and attending rituals by different groups and, and having romantic um, uh, liaisons across the traditional boundaries and all sorts of things happened. And that was amazing. And then, of course, in the 90s, the Internet came into the, into the picture. Uh-huh. And that, that has had its impact. And then, you know, in the 2000s, uh, we saw proliferation of schools and online education systems. And, um, and then in the 2010s, we had the... Uh, a, a phenomenal success and proliferation of pagan businesses, just of all sorts, taking off. Again, on top of all these other things, and now here we are in the beginning of another cycle of time, and we're seeing uh, the whole virtual world and the, and the utilization of of uh, Zoom and virtual reality and stuff. And this is just the beginning because we are starting off on a new sixty-year cycle, and every sixty years, like clockwork, clear back to the Italian Renaissance of the 1480s, there's been a cultural renaissance. And they all get names. They all get beautiful names. Like the last one in the 1960s was the New Age, you know, they called it. But the one before that, at the turn of the century, it was called the Golden Dawn. And the one before that was the Transcendentalist Awakening, you know. And before that, um, it was the... The Age of Reason. You know, and the scientific revolution, and the English Renaissance, they've all had these, and the uh, Reformation, all of these have followed on the 60-year cycle, and here we are, again, starting a new one, and it's really exciting. This one already has a name, you know, it's it's uh, the Awakening, so we'll see where this goes. What, um, the Awakening, That I love that, what the hallmark's going to be of this time with a name like that? Well, what's particularly interesting is it started off by kind of clearing the, the decks completely with this COVID thing, just put the whole world on the same footing, right? kind of, you know, burn the whole house down. And now we see, now it's time for a new phoenix to arise. I think awakening is uh, part of that. It's certainly going to be brought about by the extension of our means of communication via Zoom and and virtual stuff and all. We will be... Uh, talking to each other everywhere, all over the world, across all the boundaries. And that increases awareness about all kinds of stuff and subjects and things that had not been talked about. We're already seeing early on, you know, issues popping up that had been kind of suppressed, like racism and sexism and things Uh like that, you know, genderism. So these things are going to emerge. Uh, We are going to see some significant technological breakthroughs uh, of which, uh, already, uh, one of the big ones is 3D printing and scanning. And we're able to use that to produce body parts and things. So we're going to be seeing 
whole new revolution in in, in that. People will will be able to either print or clone, you know, replacement hearts and livers and kidneys Uh and things like that, you know, in in limbs, all this kind of stuff that's, the possibilities are just tremendous with where we're going on this. We're just scratching the surface. And it's interesting that we're all starting off uh, at the same place. Like I say, we burned the house down, and now we're all building from the ashes. And it'll be something amazing and something that would have been hard to predict. But I do feel that by the end of this decade, we will see a very different world, one which includes us um, having bases on the moon and Mars, for example, and beginning that whole realm of our uh, evolution, which will transform everything, of course, once we start doing that. I anticipate calling the next cycle, the one in the 80s, the Gaiaspora, you know, the the spreading of the seeds of Gaia out into the cosmos. So anyway, that's as far as I can go, though. 60 years in the future is, that's pushing it. All right. Well, I want to thank you you for taking time to be with us tonight. You are a delightful guest. So, uh, well, thank you. I, we really, I really enjoyed chatting with you tonight. And for all of our listeners out there, remember, if you want more information on the Gray School Wizardry, please go to www.grayschool.com. That's G-R-E-Y-S-C-H-O-O-L.com. And to learn more about Oberon or purchase his books or art, Please go to his website at obronzell.com. Okay. Hello. Besides Obron, I want to thank Dave and Jeanette, sound engineers, for their technical expertise. And I want to thank all of you out there, our listeners, for your continued support of all of our shows here on CSMT Circle Sanctuary Network podcast. Our next circle talk will be Tuesday. Oh, sorry about that. Um, this is your friendly neighborhood um, engineer. I was trying to get a cat away from walking on my laptop. So. <laughs> sorry. Oh, that's so classic. That is classic. Well, that is, well good night and exactly. blessed be. <laughs> Thank you. Good night and blessed be, everyone. All right. Bye. At the festival sounds a horn calling the people again. Child of Polycon newly summer born rapping like the green.
Did fight from noon to light, then looted striking one. And Ballas I flew in the sky and there became the sun. At the festival sound of horn, calling the people again. Child of Bollock on newly summer ripening like the green. At the festival sound of horn, calling the people again. Child of Bollock on newly summer ripening like the green.